The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Building Banking on Values with your host, Linda Ryan. Banking today can depend on a variety of factors, including where you bank. It's time to put the power back into your pockets. It's time to change what you think you know about banking. Now, here is Linda Ryan. Uh, Welcome to the Building Banking on Values show, a radio show that goes behind the scenes to shine a light on the growing global values-based banking movement. If you haven't heard of the concept of values-based banking, it's also called ethical banking, green banking, social banking, and regenerative banking. What it it actually is, is it's a type of banking where banks um, have a mission to put people before profit. And what that looks like in terms of products and services and supports that they provide is that they look at everything through the lens of whether something will create a positive economic, social and environmental impact. So we're on episode four. So far, we've explored if banking can have a seriously social conscience. We've also looked into the concept of feminine banking and change makers lobbying and teaching for a change in the banking industry, both from a regulator point of view and from a professional point of view. And last week, we welcomed strategic advisors leading research and organizational change um, right from Scotland to Canada in the banking sector. And in fact, we had some great interviews last week with Brendan Reimer, who's the strategic partner for values-based banking at Assiniboine Credit Union in Canada. And Assiniboine is actually experiencing quite incredible growth because they're going back to their roots. They're staying connected with their customers and their communities and they're providing products and services and solutions for those customers, organizations and communities that really fill their needs. And that's the essence of values-based banking. It's to stay connected and to build the relationships with the people that actually make them possible. And on the show last week, we also had Dr. Kenneth Ameshi from the University of Edinburgh. And Kenneth is actually expert in um, supporting businesses, non-government organizations, and governments from a corporate governance perspective relating specifically to the area of corporate social responsibility and sustainable business. And what we learned from Kenneth is from an education perspective, there's a growing demand from those who will enter the profession to find out more about this ethical uh, business and ethical banking and how it can actually be made successful and turned into reality in business. So there's a growing demand from a student perspective and there's also a growing demand from a business and from a banking perspective. So it was a really great show. Enough about last week though. On this episode, we're going to explore whether investment banking can have a heart. And I have some great guests lined up on the show, Gail Crawford from Microvest and James Vaccaro from Triodos Bank in the Netherlands. But before we go to James and Gail, let's take a look at the news headlines. And um, weekly on the show, David Korsland, who's a strategic advisor and has been providing strategic advice in the banking sector for over 30 years, um, he hails from Shore Bank in Chicago and ABN AMRO. David gives us a really good insight into what's in the news from a banking perspective and actually translates it for us because it's important to get an inside perspective on banking news so we can understand what's really going on. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Linda. Good to be back on the show with you. It's uh, always a, a pleasure to be here, although it puts a little pressure on me every every week to figure out what's new in the news for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you're the one doing it, and it's not me, because I'd provide a completely different perspective. So thanks, David. I appreciate your help. <laughs> Good. Happy to do so. 
So it's hard to know where to start today, but I think uh, I, I think I'll start on something uh, not directly related to banking, but very much related to money. And that's the news out of the U.S. today of of a total redesign of the U.S. currency. Um, and and I, I raised that just because it, it's, it shows, I think, how money should incorporate everyone in all walks of life. And and by 2020, I believe, is the target date. The U.S. currency will um, go, go away from being a bunch of uh, old white men, which is what it's been for years and years and years, to be much more inclusive. And I think that's also fitting with the values-based banking movement, which is also about inclusion. Most interesting, I think, is that the uh, uh, Andrew Jackson will be taken off the $20 bill and replaced by Harriet Tubman. So we go from having a slave owner on the bill to having a slave freer on the bill. And I think that's a, a tremendous step forward. And on the $10, uh, $10 bill, the back is, uh, the back is going to be covered with five leaders in the movement in the U.S. that got women the right to vote. Uh, so it's hard to remember, but both slavery and women weren't not being allowed to vote were how it was. And now the U.S. currency is going to get, uh, get up to speed and, and, and reflect those changes. So I think that's fantastic news. And uh, it's sort of nice to know that when you spend your money, you'll also be also remembering the changes that have happened to make society better and more inclusive. So uh, not directly related to banking, but very much related to money. But it's, it's interesting. I was, I'm absolutely delighted you mentioned it because I saw it on the Twitter feed this morning. And then I looked into Harriet Tubman and who she was. Um, you know, she served the Union Army. Um, she provided intelligence to commanders in person. Really, you know, it, it was the Underground Railroad, and she helped free tens of thousands of slaves. And I think you're right. It may not directly be related to banking, but I think it's really an indicator of of a level of awareness, maybe, you know, from a financial perspective or an economic perspective that wasn't there before and now is being taken on. That It's about connecting back to our roots and connecting back to people. And isn't really that's what banking should actually do. That's what our, our currency should do. That's what the monetary system is all about, exchange of values and relationships. Absolutely, and that's why I thought it would be a good good start today. So it's also a fresh story today, so I thought that was actually a good way to start. The uh, the second bit, bit in the news was this week uh, the last of the U.S. banks reported earnings, or less the large banks reported their earnings. And as we saw indications in, the, in last week's discussion, um, it really is a bad quarter for the large banks. They've had a decline of 9% in their revenues. That's the, what they start with and uh, even greater decline in net income. So revenues were down 9%, uh, steepest fall they've ever had in five years, and uh, net income was down 24%, 25%, nearly a quarter of their earnings lower than a year before. And and I, I raise that because I think it says there is something wrong with the, the, the business models of some of the large banks, and it's going to put lots of pressure on them and and I think it's now that we see the full results. And when you start looking into those numbers, you discover that their their return on equity, which is what a lot of people look at, uh, investors like to see what the uh, return on equity of large banks is, because that's uh, essentially what they earn as an investor. They continue to be well below 10%. And if you look at the return on equities of sustainable banks, they're uh, equal or better. And it's it's really interesting to make this comparison, but the, but the below 10% returns on very large banks that have lots of uh, tend to have lots of risky, more trading activities suggest that there is something fundamentally wrong. So interesting news to follow, and uh, something that we will continue to follow here at the follow at the GABV as we get ready to update our research to show the 2015 comparison of financial results. But again. What's what's going on with those business models? How could they be better? Uh, are there some real issues there? I think the answer is yes, and it'll be interesting to see how investors react to those. Um, and I, I actually want to use that into my to, to segue into my other other interesting bit of news. There's uh, quite some interesting analysis coming out now on both the high level of overdraft charges. This again is primarily in the U.S., but I think it's indicative of the rest of the world as well. High levels of 
charges for, and it's particularly affecting millennials, for if they overdraw their accounts by small amounts and they end up paying lots of, lots of fees. But you see the same phenomena in payday loans. And the payday loans, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, are where individuals borrow against their next paycheck, pay an exorbitant amount of interest, and then when the paycheck comes in, repay the loan but often then have to take out a new payday loan to, to make the ends meet until the next payday. So they're sort of trapped in a vicious cycle of, of, of debt at very high rates. But, but what uh, came out this week is they not only are paying high rates on the payday loan, but they are also incurring quite frequently uh, overdraft charges because they, as they make the payments, they get overdrawn. So, so they, they sort of suffer both through the high interest but also through the banking charges. And, and I think uh, there will be pressure from banks, oh, we can't reduce charges, uh, so, so it's just too bad people shouldn't overdraft themselves. But I think the real issue is how do banks go about developing their products? And, and I think this, is, this gets at something that I think I like to think about, which is, is sort of a systemic thinking. How do you look at the combination of things, payday lending, the fact that people don't have uh, enough money to live on, overdraft charges that, again, disproportionately affect uh, those with lower incomes or, or younger people. And, and, and I think this is where it's time for banks to step back and say, how do we go about developing products? And, and my experience in banking over the years, uh, it's, it's, it, it, I'm coming up on 40 years, Linda. June 2nd will be my 40 years since I started in my banking career. Wow. Is, uh, 20 years since I've been in the Netherlands, so coincidentally, so nearly half the time here overseas. But if you think about systemically how most banks develop products, they start by looking where can they make a profit, and they start with the profit for themselves. And uh, what, what I see with banks who, who are following the principles of sustainable banking, they start with how, do they, how can they meet a human need. So you start with the person. The person is at the center. And then you develop a product that has to be profitable. You have to be able to make money on it because you can't just give things away. But I believe that that difference in the initial motivation, is it to help people uh, and meet their needs or is it to make money? Uh, really leads to quite different consequences. And I would just suggest that if banks would step back and say, how can we develop products and services that meet human needs first, that we might have a very different situation in terms of banking products and services that would actually contribute to an improved society as opposed to one that is too focused on short-term profits and, and meeting the needs of, of bankers as opposed to meeting the needs of the individuals, enterprises, and communities with whom they operate. So that's sort of my, my news for this week. I hope that's helpful. It's great, actually, you know, and it, it makes me go back to research that I read last year, you know, where there was, uh, I think it was actually done by the GABV, David, you were probably involved, but it was it was um, proof that there's both profit and positive impact in, in this values-based approach to banking. Can you give us a bit more uh, detail on what that research actually unfolded? Because I think it was a comparison between the more traditional type of banks and, and the values-based banks. And the the revenue, I guess, that can be generated from it, um, and, but also the impact that it can create. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, the primary conclusion that that research, uh, which is, is research we first published in 2012 using data from 2010, we're now catching up. We're, we're publishing, we published research in October of 2014 with data from 2012. Uh, 2015 with data from 2014, and we hope to have the research updated for 2015 in June of this year. But what it shows is that banks, uh, sustainable banks, banks with values, have a greater focus on the real economy. They're much more active lending money. In fact, they lend twice as much of their balance sheet to individuals and enterprises as do the largest banks in the world. And what's interesting about that is that scene is doing good, but it also does well for the investors because the returns on that is higher or comparable to the returns of the largest banks in the world. The only difference is that the volatility is less. So you've got 
higher returns, lower volatility, and more focus on the real economy. That seems to me like a win-win-win, and more banks should be adopting that as their model. And I saw something else in the news, um, and I know, obviously, you're, you're dialing in from the Netherlands. So from a European perspective, I don't know if you've seen it, but if you have, I'd like to get your opinion on it. And it's it's something that seems to be going on in Italy Um uh, some some fund, uh, what is it, a private initiative backed by the Italian government designed to stop this, what is called the, the skies falling in because it's called Atlante, um, I think, which apparently is after a Greek god who held up the skies. But it's about buying shares in Italian lenders in a bid to edge the sector away from fully-fledged crisis. What's happening in Italy? Is there another banking crisis emerging there? Yeah, what you see happening in Europe is is the evolution of of a funded deposit guarantee insurance, and uh, that's very different. The U.S. has historically funded that with a fee, and and a fund is built up in advance to provide the insurance, so that if a bank fails, there's funds available to uh, protect the depositors. What you see happening in Europe is a very different situation. Uh, governments have consistently stepped in and uh, and saved banks if they've gone under and then charged uh, other banks in the banking system uh, after the fact. What Italy is doing now is trying to get a start of building a fund, but it it is all a bit bit late. And and I think that I have to say that's one element of the U.S. financial system. I can, I can give you all of the elements I don't like, but an element I find quite healthy is that they have a pre-funded insurance fund for deposit guarantees. So what you're seeing happening in Italy is is not uh, directly a result of an expected uh, crisis, but much more. Let's get our our, our funding for uh, deposit guarantees up front, and so it's there to protect us. So so that's really what that's about. It has some negative consequences for the banks in the short term because they have to they will also be contributing to that. But in the long term, I think it creates a much more stable environment. So that that's what you see happening in Italy. Uh, you have similar uh, issues in other. Other countries in Europe, uh, but not all, have gone to the, the, the sort of insurance approach. Great, David. Listen, thanks very much. I'm going to pause you there. Um, we're going to take a break. And after the show, we're going to look at the concept of whether investment banking can have a heart. David, thanks so much for joining us. It was great as, as ever. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. There are two types of leaders in business. Those who are nice, compassionate people. And frankly, they are the people who fail to get a lot done. Then there are those who can get everything done and so much more. But they are greedy, unethical, and self-centered. The Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks finds a way to use the best of both types of leaders to help you create a dynamic roadmap to success. Tune in every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace, Every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. You are tuned into Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guest, please send an email to lynda.ryan at gabv.org. That's lynda.ryan at gabv.org. You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag banking on values or tweet show host Linda Ryan at Catalyst Warrior. Now back to building banking on values. 
Welcome back to the Building Banking on Value show. Uh, this show, we're looking at whether investment banking can have a heart. And on the show uh, today, we have James Vaccaro. James Vaccaro is the Director of Corporate Strategy with Triodos Bank. Triodos Bank is probably one of the greenest banks in Europe. They're based in the Netherlands, but they have operations in a number of countries. James is also a specialist in social and environmental finance. Now, James has been with Triodos Bank since 98. He's done lots of things, so everything from advising on bond issues and share offers for leading social enterprises and charities, managing equity investments and early stage businesses in in the organic food, recycling and environmental technology sectors. James holds an MA in mathematics from Cambridge, very posh, and a certified diploma in accounting and finance. So he definitely has a numbers background and investment background. Um, James has also uh, served as a member of the Investment and Contract Readiness Fund panel. Uh, he's an author of the report for the G8 Social Investment Task Force and a director of many green and sustainable businesses. Um, he's also served on the board of the UK Sustainable Investment and Finance Association. And he's a member of the Global Steering Committee for the UNEP Finance Initiative, UNEP as in United Nations. James, I was reading your profile yesterday and I thought, my God, if this guy could be any more green or social, he'd have grass and flowers growing out of his hair. So, James, um, I hope that was a good introduction. <laughs> I feel I feel exhausted after that introduction, actually. <laughs> James, what age are you? It sounds like you've been you've been doing this for years, but you sound quite young. Yeah. No, it's well, I've I've been at Trados now for uh, just over eighteen years, so so uh, so longer than I spent in childhood. Um, uh, so it has been it has defined my working life, but but like childhood, it never felt the same for very long, and it's definitely evolved hugely since. I first joined uh, what still in the UK branch, uh, which was a very it was, a, it was in the very early days of the branch, felt like a very radical alternative, um, and and now is really kind of seeming to, to have gathered a lot more momentum and across Europe. And when I when I joined the UK branch, there were 20 people uh, in an office, and we were all sort of bouncing around this rather large office. And now uh, we we uh, we're kind of tightly packed in, and we're we're 1,100 people across Europe. Um, so it's it's uh, it's really moved on within my life within Triodos and within the world and, and the approach is sustainability and the, and the crossover with how you can how you can uh, do that in, in the sense of banking and finance. So tell us a bit about Triodos Bank. I mean, what kind of a bank is it? Is it like a retail bank that you can walk in off the street from or is it an investment bank? And how is it a values-based or a, like an ethical bank? What is it that Triodos Bank does that's so different? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we, we started really from a group who really wanted to use money in a different way. And it's all about finding the entrepreneurs, the people who can do something practically about the challenges that society faces uh, in a business-like way, not necessarily in, in terms of profits, but in, in a business-like way to have something which is grounded. So it's people who can see the challenges of the environment and really be able to develop sound environmental projects like wind farms, solar parks, uh, people who can look at things in terms of our food system and, and create uh, organic farming ventures or, or, or food businesses, uh, people looking at different societal challenges, social enterprises um, who can tackle all sorts of uh, problems in terms of social exclusion or special needs. Um, and we work with those entrepreneurs to, to make solutions fit. A lot of that is in through through the bank. So we've got a pretty large community across Europe now, um, uh, certain between half a million and three quarters of a million uh, customers across Europe who are wanting to put their money into these ventures um, that we're supporting and we're helping to uh, to bring together by by doing the, the, the financial and risk analysis and, and making sure all those agreements are sound. Um, and we're really looking to see how can we keep supporting those businesses, not just uh, necessarily through banking, and two thirds of what we do is through through providing um, loans, turning those deposits into loans. Um, but about one third of what we do is through other means, so uh, investments, investment management through a number of funds, uh, where we can take a slightly different risk position um, to support things, to maybe catalyse things. Um, and and in a sense, because we're always trying to follow the energy of the entrepreneur, um, the people who are starting new businesses, we sometimes have to think, well, okay, we're not 
sure we've got a solution right now, but let's, through the dialogue, figure out what we need to do. And, so, and that, that's a big engine for our innovation and development. It sounds like it's a very different approach. I mean, I know I, you worked on a 10-year strategy recently, um, and I think it was the U-theory approach, which you're going to have to explain to me. But what I thought was so interesting, and it goes back to what you're saying about really you're basing the whole business model or the banking model of Triodos on relationships and people and what are the actual needs of the communities and the organizations that you're serving and what are the needs um, from an investment perspective of your customers. But apparently in, in developing your 10-year strategy, you just went out on the streets and, and started asking people, um, you know, to, to contribute and to help guide you. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, we were, we were very lucky to work with, uh, I mean, the, the fantastic uh, Otto Sharma and, and Katrin Kaifer from uh, MIT, um, who, through the Presencing Institute, have developed U-Theory, um, which is really about how... How, I mean, in a, in, a, in a way, it's really about sort of unsticking situations where you just kind of get stuck in downloading what you know, even when you've got a lot of expertise. Um, and you really take a deep dive. You kind of go down, you really meet people with an openness uh, where you can bring new insights in, uh, you can make new connections. Uh, so we really did go out and we spoke to lots of different people, not just the people we knew, the, the usual suspects, but we really wanted to understand what's going on in society. We spoke to we spoke to philosophers, we spoke to people in government, we spoke to young entrepreneurs, uh, we spoke to a huge variety of, of people. Um, and we really tried to tap into what are the driving forces here, what's going on, what's going on beneath that, and really try to suspend our own judgments uh, and, and project onto them, um, but rather really kind of see the world um, through their eyes. And then when you collect all of that data, I mean, it has to be more than just, you know, it's, it's more than just market tourism. Um, it has to, if you're really open, then you can let it settle and go in. And then you, it allows you to kind of go to this sort of this, this, this point at the, at the bottom of the U where you really kind of get in touch with, well, what does it mean for you? Um, your own personal values and the sort of the essence of the organization. Um, and in terms of Triodos and the, the founding qualities of it, it was really, it's really about... Um, quality of life and human dignity and what does that mean right now given the disruptive demographics of an aging society of the dislocation of huge numbers of, of people in the refugee crisis of uh, massive increases in technology which can be incredibly exciting but with the risk of, of them also being uh, quite excluding um, so all of these sort of factors you have to sort of think well what is what does it really mean for us what does it really mean uh, to our organization to our community of stakeholders and then you come back up Again, you say, well, let's try to figure out what we do with that. Um, and you sort of try to come back and create ideas. Uh, and in, in forming the strategy after, after, after that process, um, we've been trying to not just lock down the business plans, but lock down a sense of how do we transform into a really learning organization where we're, where we're trying things out, where we're activating. Um, so, so we kind of balance not just the, the head and the heart, the sort of the logic and the, and the values, but we also have the head, heart, and the hands, that we really are action-based. We're including people in our uh, innovation uh, processes and really trying to kind of work out how do we, um, how do we adapt in a, in a very volatile, fast-changing future. Um, so, that's, so that's now uh, you know, where we are in, the, in our strategy process. How do we embody uh, that sense of rapid adaptation to be able to meet the, the needs of a changing world? So it sounds like, in a way, you're almost developing products and services based on relationships and, and what you're hearing, what you're sensing, what you're feeling from a, a community perspective and from an investor perspective. And you develop the products and services from a banking perspective to fulfill those needs, which go far beyond just creating profit. It's almost creating profit with a purpose so that you can sustain this type of impact. Yeah, I mean, products. Product is, is a useful term because it's a tangible thing that people can get their head around and you can describe it. Um, but, but in a sense, it's just a byproduct in a way. It's just a useful categorization. Really, we made a very conscious choice. So it's all about having a relationship approach. I think that when sustainability has become mainstream, what you often see is that it becomes commoditized and people just want you to be a product. 
Uh, and, you know, there's going to be all these big mega platforms out there, whether they're owned by the Googles or the Amazons of the world or, or, or whatever, who just say, oh, yeah, I just want this, but I want it in green. Um, and and to an extent, there's there's a great draw in that that approach, but we really stand for something different. We stand for how can we really make this work within the relationship? And yes, you can you can kind of use sort of some uh, some ready-made building blocks which you can call products to make that easier and scalable and and more familiar. Um, but that's just a, that's just a means to an end. Um, the end is being able to to really serve those those clients and to be able to follow them into new innovations. Um, and that's really important because if you keep on using the same tools, you will only get the same outcomes. If we're really going to be challenging ourselves to see um, in the same way that we've moved things forward from the early days of renewable energy, working with the pioneers in, in, in the wind industry or the organic farmers who are, who are uh, creating something, you know, way back sort of 20, 30 years ago, um, all the way through to the kind of the emerging challenges. So what are the social enterprise responses right now uh, who really credibly deal with, uh, with the refugee crisis and, uh, and, and other social challenges uh, of exclusion and polarization? Well, that's going to take a relationship approach of figuring out what do those stakeholders need, how can we support them in new ways. Um, it takes uh, all of our relationship managers to kind of go out with uh, the, the, the attitude of, you know, how can we make this work, how can we figure this out in the best way rather than um, here's our products, this is what we do. Uh, and that's a huge challenge. That's a huge challenge. And so with your relationship managers, I mean, is, are they bringing, I guess, a different set of tools to the table um, for these investment opportunities or for these clients, these people, these organizations that, you know, have the idea to, that will create impact? What do, what, what's different with your relationship managers? Because I'm sure in, in the more traditional form of banking, it's very much figures, you know, is this going to make sense from a financial perspective? Okay, go ahead and do it and we'll give you some lending. Like, do your relationship managers work on a different level and provide different types of supports for these types of initiatives? Well, it's, it's really at an additional level because cause here's the strategic tension. I mean, the, the, the daily life of a, of a relationship manager, whether on the banking side or the investment side, is that they've got to get everything right. It's, their, it's a prime responsibility to get everything right in terms of the numbers to make sure that the management functions of their clients are in good order, uh, the systems, all the structures in terms of uh, customers, suppliers, all of that in, in terms of how they fit into the market is well researched, well known. It's the additional aspect of being able to open up the conversation with the client to not just be about, well, we've, you know, we've, we've gone over uh, the details and gone over accounts and it all looks fine, but to also to have that more exploratory space opened up, to be able to think about what does this mean for the whole development of the sector? How does this relate? How does this connect into the broader system? What is it we might be able to do together which goes that step further? What, you know, what's, the, what's really the fundamental motivation and what does that mean in terms of, in terms of the development of this relationship? And so those are, those are skills which need to be uh, honed and practiced uh, over time and that's, that's what uh, our relationship managers uh, work on. But there's a real tension because we, help, we also, uh, in order to, to, to be uh, successful as a bank, we have to be, uh, we have to be compliant uh, with increasing regulations. We have to work efficiently. Um, and being able to do more stuff on top and which, things which are much more developmental-based, um, you know, that, that's a tension which we introduce. So we make it, we make it tougher but ultimately more rewarding. Um, when I was running the investment team here in the UK, a lot of people sort of talked about you know, their motivation for being here um, really being about a legacy. They wanted to do something and be part of something that was creative. It allowed part of their creativity to come out, expressed through the relationship, through, they, through the way they were being able to support businesses, projects, ideas, um, and really see those through to fruition. That's what, that's what got them up in the morning. James, thank you very much. It's been so interesting having you on. I mean, I, I know you have a, a tagline. I'll probably get this the wrong way around, but is it something like um, follow your heart, use your head, or, or something like that? But um, 
it, it really sounds like as an organization, your banking is almost the the means of creating the positive economic, social, and environmental change. And what you're doing is you're going out, you're listening to people, you're building relationships. You're setting up a very different type of workforce as well to to sustain and support this type of impact. So, and and at the end of the day, your customers, your clients, your and those investing are also getting a very different type of return. So, congratulations. I mean, it's it's a fantastic business model, and I'd love if there were some other bankers listening in who would actually like to connect with you to figure out how you do it. So. James, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you very much. And I know it's your son's birthday today. What's his name? Nick. Nick. So happy birthday, Nick. (laughs) Thanks, Thanks James. Folks, we're going to take you to a break. Thank you. Thanks, James. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday, 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Did you know where you bank really matters? Values-based banking is a growing, global, viable alternative to the current banking system. Find out how you can join, share, and participate in a positive money movement that is designed to put the power back in your pockets. Listen for Building Banking on Values with host Linda Ryan. Your money matters. There is a solution, and you can be a part of something greater. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. It's about a different kind of banking. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are tuned into Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guests, please send an email to lynda.ryan at gabv.org. That's lynda.ryan at gabv.org. You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag banking on values or tweet show host Linda Ryan at Catalyst Warrior. Now back to Building Banking on Values. Welcome back to the Building Banking on Value show. In this episode, we're exploring whether investment banking can have a heart. We just had James Vaccaro on from Triodos Bank, one of the greenest investment banks in Europe, and his story was quite incredible about how the bank is growing. Um, and it's growing because it's very connected to social, economic, and environmental impact and finding solutions for that and using banking as, as an intermediary to do that. Um, but now we have Gil Crawford on the show, and Gil is Chief Executive Officer of Microvest, a USA-based company. He's also an advocate for purposeful capital and an investment expert in microfinance. Um, when I read Gil's bio, you know, I read through it and it seemed like, okay, this guy is very into microfinance. He's worked in North America. You know, he's worked with capital markets across the globe. He's worked in Latin America um, and also created seed capital development funds, and he's worked with not-for-profits too. But what interested me most is he kind of, it looked like he received his banking training in what we would consider probably a very traditional type of bank or organization, Chase Manhattan. But I also see organizations like the Red Cross, the State Department, and John Hopkins University. So, Gil, instead of me reading out your bio, let me just welcome you to the show and let you take over and tell me about yourself and how you got into impact investing and sustainable banking. Great. Uh, Linda, thank you uh, for, for having Microvest on your, your show. And, um, you know, the answer to your question is, is obviously uh, it's not a straight line. I didn't um, expect to be running an um, asset management company uh, focused primarily in, in emerging markets uh, that had learned how to uh, identify uh, due diligence and invest in uh, small 
banks, financial institutions in these uh, sometimes very difficult countries that have in turn learned how to um, bank uh, the poorest among them, the working poor. And um, um, but as I was uh, as I was thinking about it, I realized that I, I actually grew up in a a family of uh, value based uh, bankers in a small uh, deindustrializing town in 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 northern New York, and um, you know, I watched, uh, I watched the bank that my father worked for uh, actually put uh, the community and the people very much in the center of their relationship banking. Um, and so uh, for me, I guess the journey started, I was in the back of a yellow Red Cross truck uh, in, in the north of Chad in, in 1986, and we were, we were literally throwing bags of, of donated food off onto the desert floor. And I realized what an undignified, uh, unequal relationship uh, we had, and um, I, at that point, I began asking other other different ways that we can uh, come at this so that we don't have to be be doing this on a permanent basis. And um, I, as you mentioned, I'd already taken a job at, at Chase Manhattan Bank, and it was in the middle of what for me was a very uh, uh, challenging uh, training program that I uh, read about Mohammed um, Yunus, um, uh, who had uh, created one of the early uh, microfinance institutions, ultimately got the Nobel Prize. And I realized that uh, that the combination of what I've been doing in Chad with the Red Cross and, and what I was learning at Chase, there was there was an intersection, a fusion of of, of two really uh, I think important important ideas. And um, uh, so while I was working on on creating small and medium sized enterprise funds out in Africa, I was approached by uh, one of the pioneers of. Um, uh, banking on values or impact investing in Europe, a gentleman by the name of Jean-Paul Viget. And uh, we created a nonprofit here in the States um, and began investing in some of the very early uh, microfinance institutions in Bolivia, Latin America, Africa. And um, eventually um, it became really clear to me that going and asking investors to invest in a nonprofit um, uh, resulted in a lot of um, relatively short, very polite conversations, but very little capital was raised. And I can, so the I can imagine. I mean, there must have been significant challenges. I mean, it's you know, it's like it, there are two different worlds. One is definitely charity and corporate social responsibility, and the other is, as you say, from a microvest perspective, purposeful capital. So, how do you get around those conversations? Well, you know, it's interesting. We had to change. Um, we had to change how we thought, and, and what, what became increasingly inter- uh, clear at Microvest, um, and Microvest was, was founded by, by, by a number of people and organizations who realized that the underlying asset, the loan to a, a small um, micro-entrepreneur, um, had very low default rates, and that there was an incredible increase in productivity, and that was resulting in financial institutions that were very solid, similar to the ones that David and you discussed in the GABV study uh, um, uh, the you know, relatively low volatility. And what we found was when we looked at a portfolio of loans to these microfinance banks, these banks that were lending small amounts of money to the working poor, was that as a portfolio, they were risk-adjusted. That meant that, that we were able to pay investors a, a, fair, a fair return. And we realized that because the demand for this funding is so enormous that we had a responsibility to create products, funds, and vehicles that the really big investors in the world would understand, uh, the institutional investors, the insurance companies, and the pension funds. And so we very deliberately set about creating uh, vehicles that um, allow pensioners or people who have insurance policies through their um, their pension funds and insurance companies to to invest in um, some of the uh, the poorest uh, members of our global society, and what we found is that um, we're able to earn these kinds of returns not despite the fact that we're social, Linda, but because we're social. It is our social filter that allows us to uncover a lot of hidden value, the value that somebody making artisanal soap. In a, in a in a shanty town uh, has someone who's retire, uh, repairing bike tires, and what we found 
after that is that many of these tiny businesses that are often spread all over the country uh, that we're banking in, say Tanzania, that these uh, that these investees are ultimately relatively immune to global financial shocks. So when the too big to fail banks blew up, our portfolio showed very low co- very low correlation to the global shock waves. The guy repairing a bike tire in Tanzania was relatively unaffected by what had happened in Shanghai, London, uh, and New York. So I, I, that's that's a long answer to a pretty simple question, but um, uh, that's that's how that's how we came to be at, at Microvest. Wow, uh, it's just like it, it, it's. I know I'm working in this industry and have been for a number of years, but these stories just still amaze me, you know. And that's that's the beauty of this show. It's to help you actually tell people, you know, there is there is profit there is, in positive impact, and it is possible and. The kind of organizations you're working with are very solid, and they're they're immune in some ways to to the speculative shock that traditionally you know we would be used to and we would have heard of. So it's interesting. I mean, from an investor perspective, um, what what keeps investors from investing in this type of impact? Is it simply a lack of awareness or are they looking for a much higher return that they would get with more speculative vehicles, as you call them? What, what are the challenges around this? Well, I think you've hit on, on, on one already, and that is that um, people conflated impact investing, investing in microfinance institutions with charity. And so the big change um, for microvest and I think for some of the others doing this is that we we, we had to demonstrate with 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 with, with data uh, that this is a relatively um, uncorrelated and and a a, a risk adjusted um, asset. Um, secondly, um, and this was probably more the case early on, and it will continue to be the case for smaller asset managers who are just starting a new sector. We were introduced to some of the really outstanding, um, uh, outstanding wealthy people, let's say, in Silicon Valley. I think their real concern was not that they would lose the investment they were making. It was, it was a relatively in, in, immaterial amount of money for them. What they were primarily concerned about was being viewed as a, as a fool or a chump by their peers. Wow. Um, Today, I think, um, if we're really going to move the needle on impact investing, um, we need to have products that are uh, viable products for um, the pension funds and insurance companies of the world. They, they manage about 87% of the world's wealth. And um, uh, to do that, you need to have vehicles that they've seen before. They can't be uh, highly idiosyncratic vehicles. Um, you have to have a track record. We have a 12-year track record of this now. Um, you uh, have to demonstrate uh, uh, that it's risk-adjusted, um, and you need to have uh, systems, uh, professional systems that only a large asset manager can have. And so I think one of the other imp- impediments is that many of the new ideas, let's say distributed solar finance um, or uh, impact investing in healthcare, many of these uh, asset managers are, are sub-scale. And I think one of the things that, we're so excited about with um, the Sapphire Fund that was created by uh, GBB is that it is creating a track record all over the world in the, in, the, in the emerged economies of Europe, the United States, Australia, but also in the emerging markets that deposit-taking financial institutions who are value-based regenerative banks, um, that they have a track record and um, they're large enough um, to be able to absorb the kind of capital that uh, institutional investors uh, can, can invest in. Gil, I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. Thank you very much. If people want to find out more about Microvest and, and how they can get involved in this type of investing um, and also how they can draw on this type of investing, where should they go? Well, obviously, you know, our, our, our website and... Um, uh, uh, and and uh, we 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 welcome uh, welcome phone calls as well, um, and there there are uh, a number of of I think uh, YouTube uh, pieces up as as well. Um, but um, and what's your web address, Gil? Oh, uh, uh, microvest uh, 
microvestfund.com. Microvestfund.com. Gail, thank you so much. I mean, it's such such a cool story. Uh, folks, I'm just going to close off um, the show. Gail, you can stay on the line there. Folks, we've had some wonderful guests on the show. I mean, we had David Cordland, strategic advisor, giving us a behind-the-scenes interpretation of what's going on in banking and, and even from uh, the perspective of investors are getting more and more um, aware, you know, and they're asking questions um, that that leads us to these opportunities. And, and it goes back to the theme for this show is that the power is in your pockets. If you bank with any kind of financial institution, if you have money in deposits, if you lend or if you have lending, if you invest, the power is back in your pocket. So you can make change by either asking these questions of your own financial institutions or switching financial institutions to to values-based organizations. And interesting Gil's story, obviously, you know, it takes us from Chad um, in one continent to Chase Manhattan in New York in another continent. And and James from Tridos um, was talking about the green banking and the potential and significant growth that Tridos are, are experiencing because investors really want to invest in this type of impact. So it's just fantastic to, to have these stories shared with us on the show. Um, what's trending from a social media perspective under the hashtag banking on values? It's interesting. Definitely what's trending is the MIT Massive Open Online course, and I'm amazed to see that already the course is only within its first week, and there are already 6,000 people registered for this free online course on values-based banking. So check it out. It's called Just Money Banking as If Society Mattered. If you want to find find out more about this, um, you can go to our website, gabv.org, and you can also just Google MIT edX or this uh, course name, Just Money Banking as if society mattered. What else is trending? Um, GLS Bank in Germany have picked up on the radio show. Um, Southern Bank Corp in the US have picked up on the radio show. New Resource Bank in the US have picked up on the radio show too, and they're, they're celebrating it. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Um, folks, it's been a great show. If you want to follow us, you can actually tweet me at Catalyst Warrior. Use the hashtag banking on values and you can also see what else is going on. Um, and don't forget the uh, Twitter handle of the channel, Voice AM Business. It's been a fantastic show. As ever, it's a privilege to have brought it to you. And I look forward to welcoming two great guests on the show next week. Um, so tune in, uh, check out the show on voiceamerica.com, and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Building Banking on Values. Please join your host, Linda Ryan, again next Thursday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.